Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Critically Acclaimed Streaming Club, the only streaming club that's critically acclaimed streaming club. My name is William Bibiani. I am a critic. Everybody calls me Bibbs. Uh, my name is Whitney Seibold. I, too, am a critic, and this is uh, our... our I guess our inaugural spinoff episode. Yeah. Uh, the streaming club was part of critically acclaimed, the main uh, new film release uh, film review podcast that we had. And when the pandemic hit and everybody was inside, we decided to expand our horizons into what people are watching at home. Yeah. And um, go into the streaming services that, that were, were going neglected uh, in favor of our new, new film releases. Well, basically what happened was uh, for the majority of the pandemic, uh, most films that were, even the ones that were released in theaters were also being released on video on demand. So the majority of people were watching movies at home and it seemed weird to only watch new releases at home. So we wanted to remind people that while you're watching, I don't know, whatever was on Mortal Kombat, Wonder Woman 1984, uh, whatever was on Netflix last year, I don't even remember. Uh, <laughs> but so uh, while you're watching all of that, uh, there's also a lot of old movies mm-hmm. that are on those streaming services, many of which uh, we haven't seen before, or you haven't seen before. And so we decided to leave it up to our patrons over at patreon.com slash critically claimed network. Every one of our patrons, even at $1 a month, gets to vote for an, uh, an episode of sh- uh, the streaming club mm-hmm. every week. We present four films from a particular category or decade or filmmaker on a particular streaming service, and that varies from week to week. Uh, And uh, we each pick two films. Whitney picks two, and I pick two. And the only rule is they have to meet that criteria, they have to be on that streaming service, and we can't have seen them before, or maybe we saw them when we were a little kid and we barely remember them. Like We'll we'll, we'll cut a little slack for that. Mm. Uh, so it's two Whitney hasn't seen, two I haven't seen. Sometimes there's overlap and neither of us have seen it. Our patrons vote for it. And um, it was a successful segment. People liked it. People talked about it. And we realized that now that cinema is you know, coming back in full force in theaters and films like A Quiet Place are actually making quite a lot of money, the system might change a little bit. And so we felt that the streaming club deserved its own yeah, separate well- show. I've I've liked doing it because it's given us an excuse to catch up on the films we've always kind of meant to yeah. that are red- readily available, and we've watched a lot of great films because of this, and also some real yeah. turkeys, and that's fine yeah. too. And yeah, yeah, but popular ones, so we're at least more conversant in some of these yeah. notorious stinkers. Winnie and I are film critics. We've been professional film critics for at least ten years each, and. Mm. We've watched a lot of movies. We've watched a lot of classic movies. We've watched a lot of international movies, mainstream movies, franchise films. But nobody has time to see everything. Like, nobody. I don't care who they are. You could have been around since the dawn of cinema. You wouldn't have had the time. So we're always playing a little bit of catch-up. No matter how much you think you know about something, there's always more to learn. And this is a great opportunity for us to, you know, a lot of the stuff that we talk about, if it's not a brand new release, is stuff that we've seen a bunch. You know, we could talk about Citizen Kane till the cows came home. We've seen it a bunch of times. Mm. I love it. I'll happily talk about it again. But we want that sense of discovery. For a long time, there were a lot of older movies that I didn't see kind of on purpose just because I wanted to eventually have something that I hadn't seen that I had heard good things about mm. and have that sense of discovering an old classic because I hear people talking about like, oh, yeah, I just saw um, the Taking of Pelham 1, 2, 3 for the very first time. And I'm like, oh, that's, oh you're so lucky. Mm. <laughs> watching that movie for the very first time is such a great sense of discovery. And so, yeah, we get this every week. And uh, our patrons get to be involved and help curate the films that we pick. 
And uh, this first episode of the Critically Claimed Streaming Club, proper, uh, is a bit of an aberration. We're really only going to do <laughs> one a week, but this time we had a vote, and the vote was for family films on the streaming service Tubi, which is a free streaming service. It has ads, but they're not terribly obtrusive, and it actually has a pretty good back catalog of older, esoteric cult films. Uh, so we decided to make the first one about family films on Tubi. Wendy picked mm. two, I picked two, uh, and it ended up being a tie on the first poll between the film I picked, one of the films I picked and one of the films he picked. It was a tie between Troop Beverly Hills and a gnome named Gnorm. So we had a runoff between just those two titles, and it was a tie <laughs> between Troop Beverly Hills and a gnome named Gnorm. Some of our uh, patrons... Uh, were given like slightly different readouts. The one said like one got like forty nine percent, the other one got fifty one. But on our back end, it was a tie. So we decided mm. that even if maybe somehow there's a glitch in the system and one film got one more vote, clearly people wanted these films equally. So we're gonna do both. Yeah, and just just to make it fun. So Whitney, where would you like to start? On the first streaming club episode. Oh golly, where to start? Well, why don't we start with the good one? That is to say, Troop Beverly Hills. Yay! Uh, Phyllis Neffler's life was a symphony of spending. This one. Out. I'll take the rest. I started my new meaningful life today. And I bought a whole new meaningful wardrobe to go with it. Until her husband stopped the music. You never give me an ounce of credit for anything I do. That's because you never do anything! Well, then I guess I'm going to do something right now. Approve! Mom's going to be our new troop leader. Who are you?! Uh, Phyllis Neffler, Troop Beverly Hills. Now, she's changing her style. Well, girls, are you ready to rough it? From Rodeo Drive. I can't let you take the girls out there alone. Why not? Because you get lost in your walk-in closet. The Cookie Drive. That jamboree thing sounds fabulous. <laughs> My troop is definitely going. What is a jamboree? Cool. Um, now, that said, Troop Beverly Hills is not a great movie with a capital G. Get out of my apartment. <laughs> I've invited you to my apartment so many times. You're like, out of I've, here, you're gone. I've, I've I have been a framed your, poster of Troop Beverly and, Hills. And, and I went to your wedding, and you played the song from Troop Beverly Hills at your wedding. Yes, you I, did. I understand not not at the after moment. party. During, it, it, the, during ceremony. the ceremony. They, they, it was that important to us. That, that, was, that was the exit song. Yeah. Specifically, mm. the uh, Beach Boys song, yeah. Make It Big, mm. which plays over the credits of Troop Beverly Hills, and it's an animated sequence which... Mm. Weirdly, there's a lot of weird history here. Was animated by John Kay, mm. uh, the creator of Ren and Stimpy, who yeah, would go on a, to be re- revealed to be a massive creep. Yeah, it, it, uh, my my response was, "Oh look, John Kay! Oh right, John Kay! Uh, <laughs> John, yeah, John Kay has done some pretty unsavory things. It's some extremely uh, unsavory uh, things. I think it's. I think you're underplaying it. It's really usually gross. Uh, uh, but he he is also the creator of the Ren and Stimpy show, so he's uh, like." also an important figure in animation. So mm. it, there's all the, all this ambivalence about like his importance as an artist and his unsavory character. I wouldn't say it's uh, ambivalence. I just think it's, it's mm. difficult to acknowledge well, it's, that both it's, things it's are a, true. It's a balance. Like, yeah. We, both, we, both things are true. We want he nothing is, to do with him, but he clearly had an enormous influence yeah. so, on animation mm. as we know it. And so that's he, weird. He did an opening animated sequence in that Spumco style, uh, just sort of, Laying out some of the uh, the the character of what what the movie we're about the to see, antics, um, if you the, will. There you go, the an- antiking that's going to go on. Yeah, the story is about uh, Shelley Long. Uh, she plays uh, 
Beverly, a rich Beverly Hills uh, housewife. Mm-hmm. She described herself is, as a trophy as a trophy wife. Yeah. Like that was her day yeah, job. That, for that's a while. yeah. That's that's not disparaging. That is her own her own uh, description of herself. And she, her marriage is about to end uh, with Craig T. Nelson. Craig mm-hmm. T. Nelson has made a fortune being a mascot for a muffler company. He mm-hmm. dresses in a muffler outfit. We see him on TV. And it's important to remember, and, this is the late 1980s. These are good gets. Shelley Long was mm-hmm. off of was uh, off of Cheers, which is one of the biggest sitcoms ever. Craig mm-hmm. T. Nelson, was was Coach on yet, or had it just about th- to I premiere? I think Coach was running at the same time as this. It's about the same yeah, time. It's about 89. So these so, are big sitcom stars. They got their own movie. And... Uh, like I said, their marriage is on the outs, and she's always been a little bit embarrassed by the way he's made his money. Because it's not a dignified way to make money, of being a pitch man for a company, but sure is lucrative. They have a very, very fancy mansion in Beverly Hills, which if you are if you don't know, it's a very swank neighborhood in Los Angeles. Like, it's... It's one of the most expensive zip codes in the entire world. Yeah, and... Um, there's, it's really interesting how this movie begins, actually, because you've got this opening animation sequence, which is which is in a vacuum, at mm. least, nicely animated, looks like it'd be a good kids' TV show, uh, and then it opens with just a, a, a meeting of the Wilderness Girls, because the Girl Scouts didn't want to put their name on this. Um, well, Girl Scouts and Boy Scouts are copywritten. And yeah, you if have you to, want to use them, you need to get their permission. You have to get their permission, and, and you probably have to pay a good deal. Mm-hmm. And They almost never give their they're, permission. Well, they're the types of institutions that uh, don't want to license. They're, mm-hmm. they're just sort of their own thing. Well, they're also very protective of their image, and mm-hmm. so if there's anything even remotely untoward, mm-hmm. uh, they they tend not to allow it. So yeah, you're not. Yeah. So there's always like some fake version of it. Uh, and so here it's the Wilderness Girls instead of the Girl Scouts, but it's clearly the Girl Scouts. And we start off at a Wilderness Girls meeting, and they just basically say, yeah, so there's a Troop Beverly Hills, and it needs a Scoutmaster, and I guess it's going to be Shelley Long now. And it's like, we're just skipping the inciting incident entirely. Mm. We are just getting started right away. There's no point wasting well, the- 20 minutes getting to the point where Shelley Long agrees to be a Girl Scout leader. We're already there. Yeah, uh, that, that's modern screenwriting. There would be 20 full minutes of what her life was like leading up to that point, what mm-hmm. the troop had gone through before, the, the, the incident. We would have witnessed the incident that got the previous... Uh, Scoutmaster fired. I've often wondered if there was like deleted footage or just an early draft or that was in there and some genius filmmaker decided to cut it all out. Here's what I'm guessing. I think screenwriting has just changed and Mm. they're quicker, quicker on the gun uh, Mm. back in 1989. They were able to get to the, the meat of the story a lot faster doesn't really matter how that Scoutmaster got fired or Shelley Long's entire life leading up to that point. What they do have is a big fight uh, between Shelley Long and Craig T. Nelson about uh, the state of their marriage and how they've kind of lost faith in each other. They also have a daughter. Yeah. Uh, played by Jenny Lewis. And how do we know Jenny Lewis? Jenny Lewis is a, a big star. She was in a lot of films uh, as a kid. Mm-hmm. And she's also uh, in, oh, what is her band? Is it Rilo Kiley? I think it's Rilo Kiley. Yeah, yeah. She, she she's also like an indie music. Yeah. Rilo uh, Kiley, goddess. not just a Sith Lord, also a very uh, very mm. popular indie band, mm. which was uh, headlined by uh, uh, Jenny Lewis. Jenny Lewis, yeah. Uh, who was also I believe she was also in the Wizard. Am I? Am I? She was. She was. Yeah. yeah she was the the lead, female lead in the the Wizard. Yeah. So o- uh, opposite Fred Savage. So she's in this Wilderness Girls troupe, and she they need a new. Uh, uh, they need a new troop leader. Mm. And Shelley Long has agreed to do it. And Craig Nelson uh, basically just says, it, this is going to be hilarious. You never finish anything. And they have a really big fight. And I actually really like this fight. 
at the beginning of the movie because the, even though there's going to be a lot of silliness later, the fight is actually about genuine relationship stuff and he's mad because he feels like he does all the work in the relationship and all she does is spend and worry about their image and she talks about how hey listen i actually scrimped and saved to help put you through law school because that was your dream and then you ended up doing this instead Mm. and now my job was to be your trophy wife and i did that for you and it sounds it's it's one of those arguments where they're clearly both in the wrong. Mm. They clearly this is not like just one of them is a bad person. This is a relationship that had expectations, and at some point they cross they cross mm. paths and they just yeah, missed they, each other and they're no longer on the same page. And, well, and I buy that. I buy them. And but it, it doesn't really track though that she sort of was there for him the whole time and scrimped and saved and they once lived in poverty and now they're rich. Mm-hmm. Because she uh, she's clearly written as if she's old money and was raised in wealth because she's a little bit clueless as to the way the world works now. Maybe. she Or she's become so blinded by her wealth that she's sort of lost contact with the rest of the world. Or because maybe she was to, rich yeah. and she married a guy who wasn't rich and then she yeah. made sacrifices yeah, for him yeah. and now they're rich again. But the, the joke of the movie is that... Uh, the wilderness girls, the Girl Scouts, are a little bit more about roughing it. They're about wilderness survival. Mm. They're a little bit more nature-oriented and uh, a little bit more geared toward learning and building, uh, using your own wits within the natural world. Survival skills. Survival skills. And uh, Shelley Long is uh, very urbane. She's very. Uh, she lives in the big city and doesn't know anything about that and the big juxtaposition of putting this rich clean uh, makeup and hairdo coated socialite in the wilderness comedy would ensue. Yeah. Uh, and honestly, and pretty good setup. Uh, it, well, it's a pretty good setup and you, I'm glad they didn't necessarily go down the path of, Oh no, I have a squirrel in my hair kind of jokes mm-hmm. where it's just sort of like shaming her because yeah. she's actually a very bubbly, good hearted person. Mm-hmm. And the film I was reminded of was actually cold comfort farm, oh, yeah. a film from the, the mid nineties that I'm very fond of with Kate Beckinsale. Uh, which is about a rich socialite who doesn't have any experience living in the country going to live with fam- like some hayseed family members, distant hayseed family members, out on their mud farm. It's just this filthy, horrible place, and everybody's miserable there. Cold comfort farm. And, uh, and yeah, there's like a, a crazed grandmother who lives in the attic and always talks about, oh, the farm is cursed when we see her at all. And, <laughs> all these like country bumpkins who have no ideas to like the way the world works like why do i keep having children i don't know how it works uh and she uh, rather than it being about the country people using their down home earthiness to teach her a lesson which would be the american story it's about her taking her upper class wealth and cleaning things up around the farm yeah and then going back to the city it's about her using her intuition from the city to clean up something that is very kind of Low class. So yeah. the upper class enlightening the lower class. It's kind of the opposite of Capra-esque. And exactly. Yet, and yet it has that very wholesome, mm. charming quality, and so it ultimately feels a little Capra-esque anyway. Yeah, um, but and, uh, but it, it, that's a British movie. This is an American film that does the same thing, mm. and it feels really backwards. Yeah. Because it is about Shelley Long using her wealth and connections and limited knowledge of how to traverse the streets of Beverly Hills, specifically, mm. to 
teach these girls life lessons. And of course, at the end of the film, we learn there's life lessons that can be found just about anywhere. Yeah, where you it's were born. Ultimately pretty positive. Where, where you were born and what uh, mm. uh, uh, social stratus you were mm. raised in uh, doesn't have to prevent you from being a good person. Yeah. And I feel that, you know, the 1980s was uh, an era where wealth had started to become... More so than in previous generations, as, as near as I can tell, really fetishized for yeah. a while. It I became... mean, Robin Leach appears in this movie, yeah. and Robin Leach had a, a program called Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. Which uh, is basically just look at how yeah, rich if, these people are. The show. If, if you think it's really bad now with, like, Instagram influencers constantly photographing and showing off their wealth and comfort, it was way worse in the 80s. Mm. To the point where, yeah, there were TV shows about, how look how wealthy these people are. They have yachts that are coated in gold and here's a dress that cost them $50,000 and that's 1983 dollars. Yeah. And we were supposed to tune into that show and just go, wow, isn't that great? I wish I had that. I, I wish I had that money. I like, should work harder at the a warehouse where I work and then I'll get that mansion. Spoiler alert, you won't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that's not the way wealth works. We're a little bit wiser about wealth. I but would this hope was in, so. This but, was in 1989 well, when uh, we were... Starting a little bit of a reckoning mm-hmm. with I, our our view toward the ultra wealthy. Well, I think there actually had been in comedies actually mm. throughout the the late seventies and the eighties in particular. There started to be this sort of I've heard it called the slobs versus snobs genre, mm. often typified by Animal House, which is a really gross movie actually, but it was very influential. Uh, and it was about how oh here are the rich snooty people, mm. and then here are the uh, unwashed. The uh, the less educated, mm. less well dressed, uh, less polite, uh, uh, just the hoi polloi, the the working mm. class who will get revenge on the rich and powerful. Yes. And we had a lot of that in the eighties. That was kind of the comedy paradigm: is that the rich were the bad guys by default. Yeah, they- and True Beverly Hills kind of reverses that. And I kind of, and, and it seems like that would be the kind of thing where you might want to reject it. It'd be like, well, it, it surely that's that's a weird message. But what ultimately Troop Beverly Hills ends up being about is the idea that yes, the fabulously wealthy are living on another planet. Hmm. They are indeed part of a completely different environment where there are very different rules and. They're they they are completely divorced from a lot of the regular human experience, but they are still human beings, and having a connection to other human beings and learning positive lessons about mm. being in a community and being friends and being self and being self sustaining is actually really important because otherwise we get like the Trumps, uh, yeah, and well, that's it, kind of what it boils down to here is we, the rich, is, the rich and powerful are people too, and they need to be treated that way in order to become real people. Yeah, um, I, I listened to a lecture on Hamlet recently about the function of tragedy, and you'll notice in tr- most tragedies, especially Shakespeare's tragedies. Uh, the subjects are always of high station. Mm-hmm. They're royals of some sort, Mostly, or, yeah. or they're they're upper class citizens of some sort, and. Um, or the, or they're connected to the kings, or they've married into mm-hmm. royalty, and it's about how uh, 
when they they start to per, uh, experience these personal tragedies, the entire kingdom falls apart. There's a, always a mm. connection to a there's a larger uh, consequences to their own personal failings. Yeah, uh, and as such, tragedies are inherently political. Yeah, um, this is why that's, this that's is why read, but um, this is why in Beauty and the Beast, like yeah. all of the other like people in the in the castle mm. get turned into stuff too. It's not because they had responsibility for it. It's because where the kingdom goes, there goes its people. Right. And right. those are interconnected. Uh, yeah. And something like Troop Beverly Hills is not a tragedy. It's a comedy film. Yeah. But this is uh, trying to use the language of comedy to have the ultra wit rich scrabble towards their connection with humanity. Yeah. This is, that's the, the arc of, of the Shelley Long character. Yeah. She is disconnected and she realizes not that she's disconnected, but that, that humanity is a, a requisite to live. Yeah. And what I, and what makes this formula work is she's not actually abusing middle-class kids and forcing her viewpoint on them. These are actually ultra, also ultra wealthy kids who are also disconnected from the world. Yeah, we've got uh, kids who mm. are uh, the children of uh, famous actors. Mm. We've got kids who are uh, children of uh, plastic surgeons. We have kids yeah, who are children famous of famous athletes, psych psychiatrists. There's a mm. lot of pop psychology in this, where people mm. are repeating a lot of. Uh, uh, self-esteem platitudes that were really hip in the late 80s. Uh, there's a woman who is clearly... Uh, um, was it Jacqueline Suzanne who wrote all mm. those uh, uh, books? Jackie Collins. Jackie Collins, that's yeah. something. Who's Jacqueline Suzanne? She's also an author. Okay, fair enough. But uh, Jackie Collins is like a Jackie Collins type woman and mm. her daughter is also an a like a, a young actor like on some TV show. And yeah, there's she, a really... She, the, the daughter is already really famous and her mom is like Jackie Collins. So yeah. her, the daughter is like helping her write these really salacious sex scenes, yeah. uh, like helping her spitball. And it's actually like, I like the bit. She actually has mm. a good bit that kind of grounds the movie really, really fast where the daughter says, um, you know, like mom's like, Hey, do you really need to go do this wilderness girl thing? Like it's, it's, uh, Shelly Long's doing it. It's going to be really weird and probably missing the point. And she says, no, I am an actor in Hollywood and I'm a child. I need some connection to other, humanity. Other children, I, need, yeah. I need friends. I feel weird. Like this is wrong. So, we're just solidifying right now. And, so uh, and one kid is the child uh, of a dictator. Uh, specifically Marcos from, uh, from the Philippines. Yeah. It's, it's a uh, weird joke. Yeah. And, and he shows up and it's clearly, yeah, they, they even make a joke about uh, how his wife has too many shoes, which was uh, the joke about Imelda Marcos, mm. uh, Fernando Marcos, uh, for, excuse me, Ferdinand <clears throat> Marcos's wife, mm -hmm. uh, who was eventually ousted, but was in, was a dictator of the Philippines for, Many, many years. And yeah. yeah, he just shows up in his dictator mobile and they call him dictator. Like that's his title. They, they never say his last name, but it's very, if you, if mm. it's supposed like nowadays that we might be far enough removed from that period of history that he's not instantly recognizable. But yeah. if at the time he was instantly recognizable. Now, how do you make this group of unconnected, ultra wealthy children of celebrities and dictators into underdogs? Well, it turns out that Culver City and <laughs> and Mar Vista, which is the neighborhood where we live, yeah. <laughs> have much better scout troops. Yeah, like much more like yeah. like really like hardcore survivalist scout yeah. troops. And they are led by a woman named Velda Plender, who is played by the great Betty Thomas. 
Mm. <laughs> uh, Betty Thomas, who had actually I mean, accomplished actor, but mm. also directed a lot of great movies. Uh, she directed the Brady Bunch movie, which was is still surprisingly amazing. <laughs> she directed Private Parts. She directed the Eddie Murphy Doctor Doolittle, which isn't a great movie, but was a huge gigantic hit. Uh, she directed I Spy and uh, Twenty Eight Days. She's very accomplished, mm. um, and she's very very T- funny tw- here. Twenty Eight Days. Better than it gets credit for. The Sandra Bullock movie. It's, yeah, clear, it's, yeah, it's 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 an al- alcoholism movie, and yeah. it's actually uh, like not great, but weirdly wise in certain ways. Yeah. Um. So I'm a big fan. I think Betty Thomas is really really talented, and so uh, she's a she's a very stern taskmaster, and she has absolute absolutely no love nor tolerance for Troop Beverly Hills, who she sees as coming from uh, wealth and privilege and unwilling to do the work. And initially, she's not wrong. Hmm. They actually go out to uh, to do some camping, and uh, yeah, so, so uh, Shelley Long's like attendants put up the tents. They have a little buffet. They're, they're instead of like roasting marshmallows, they're doing fondue, which really is just as easy as marshmallows. Like I was uh, watching this, I'm like, why not? Fun- why don't we do fondue? F- fondue was one of those foods in the in the eighties that was mocked for being a little bit outré, only rich person food. It's like it's a- melted chocolate and yeah. or cheese. Like it's not complicated. Yeah. You can totally do fondue. Do you remember that that scene in the Breakfast Club where Molly Ringwald says she's eating sushi and they kind of make a face like, "What the hell? You're bringing sushi?" That's like the yeah. we- the weirdest possible thing somebody could have brought to school in in nineteen eighty six. And I would eat sushi every single day if someone would let me. And yeah, now, yeah. Now, now sushi is so incredibly common. You can yeah. get it anywhere, but yeah, it was considered like weird rich person food for a little bit. Yeah, there was even a joke about that when we uh, uh, talked about the adventures of Briscoe County Junior. There were a oh, lot yeah. of like fun anachronistic jokes about this is something that was invented, and somebody was inventing sushi on a pier. And uh, one of the characters was like, no one will, will ever eat this stuff. Oh, no, it's going to be big someday. And that sh- that mm. series came out in the mid '90s when mm. sushi was like finally, becoming had, popular. It finally America, exploded and. Yeah. In, in, in the United States. Well, I mean, it, it was already technically popular. was. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. Um, it was becoming mainstream in so yeah, the United d- States. Yeah. Um, so yeah fun, fondue is is a joke on the rich yeah. in Beverly, true Beverly Hills. So they get uh, they get caught in the rain and uh, mm-hmm. it's really embarrassing and they all say screw it and they end up camping out in a fancy hotel. The Beverly Hills Hotel. <laughs> yeah. And uh, they, they tell stories. It's actually a fun counterpoint between uh, the telling spooky stories in Adam's Family Values. Mm. And uh, telling spooky stories in Troop Beverly Hills. You remember Adam's Family Values? It cuts to Wednesday Adams saying, and the next morning, all their old noses had grown back. <laughs> ah! There's a version of that in Troop Beverly mm. Hills, but it's about getting a perm. Um, That's right, my, my perm had straightened overnight. No, 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 it was like, he oh, no, the- permed me! Ah! It's adorable. Mm. Um, but... Uh, it turns out that uh, Velda points out that you're not roughing it. You're not mm. actually teaching them anything. Mm. You're just hanging out in a hotel room, and that's not the point. She's cruel about it, but her no. overall point is valid. And so Shelley Long says, okay, I actually need to work at this. I can't teach these kids survival skills that I don't have. Yeah. But what I can do is take the skills that I have learned operating within this I, weird ultra rich mm. paradigm that I have and try to turn this into something healthy and positive. And so she uses her Beverly Hills skills to teach kids things like how to appraise diamonds, <laughs> which is an interesting skill. I'm not going to, I'm not going to pretend otherwise teaching kids various dances. Dancing is a perfectly valid thing yeah. for a merit badge, that kind of thing. Um, they, they end up like, instead of their, their version of like helping people across the street is volunteering at an old folks home mm. for like for wealthy people, but still an old folks home. Yeah, like, it's still valid, you know, handing out magazines. And the gag is, um, 
handing out magazines. They can't get anybody interested. But the old man perks up when he starts reading the Penthouse magazine. Yeah. Just a little okay. inappropriate, but it, yeah. it's, ha- it's handled relatively tactfully. 13-year-old girls have Penthouse magazine. Yeah. That, uh, it was a thing in the it's, 80s. It was, it it's was... handled as well as that can be, I yeah. think. Yeah. Um, it probably wouldn't fly today, but... Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but... Um, yeah, it's, it's going. It's going in, better. In, yeah, in so doing, and yeah. in teaching uh, the the young girls these skills, she is reconnecting with humanity, understanding that connecting mm. with other human beings is important. Mm. Craig, Craig T. T. Nelson, Nelson begins yeah. noticing this, and he starts to uh, drift away from his hot young new girlfriend mm-hmm. uh, back toward Shelley Long. Yeah, uh, it the, it hits like an apex in the middle, where uh, one of the most important things of being a quote unquote wilderness girl. Girl Scouts mm. uh, is selling cookies, and they the the uh, the the red feathers, which are the uh, Velda's group, the they col- have little red feathers in their caps, and that's how you can tell them apart from everyone else. Ooh, from Culver City, evil, evil Culver, Culver City. City. They shut if- down my favorite fa place. Damn them. <laughs> Culver City, there used to there used to be a chili joint in Culver City called Tubbs Chili, and they closed it. There was a place on Venice called Superfa that was the absolute (laughs) best. It was so affordable and so good. It got me through so many rough years, and it closed during the pandemic, and I'm just furious. Culver City, by the way, is this incredibly weirdly sprawling neighborhood here Mm. in Los Angeles, uh, where. It's probably best known for being the seat of a lot of local film studios. Uh, mm-hmm. A lot of the, the places that aren't Sony Pictures yeah, is so, over there. Sony yeah. is in Culver City, and yeah. a lot of other studios besides. And it then, also was for a long time, not so much anymore, but for a long time, it was one of the more affordable areas yeah, in Los well, Angeles. Th- that's what was really curious about it. It was like this weird mix of of high. It was like Venice. It was yeah. like some really high rent properties and some really low rent properties. Now it's there's no facing a, a lot of like there's this huge amount of gentrification going on yep. in Culver City right now. But there's um, no low price departments in LA anymore. They're gone. No, no, no it's, but it's horrible. But yeah, it, it, back yeah. in 1989, Culver City was not a rich neighborhood. No. Um, so, uh, but uh, the the Velda's group is going to sell. Uh, I think it was it was going to sell two. Th- uh, they're going to sell a thousand boxes, and I was mm-hmm. just like, oh shit, they they got this. They got this in the bag. They're amazing. And uh, Shelley Long, trying to uh, prove that the, the true Beverly Hills can do it, uh, says, well, we'll sell 2,000. And Velda's like, sure, you will. And I do appreciate that, you know, Shelley Long has a meeting with all the parents. Mm. And uh, the uh, Jackie Collins parent says, well, why don't we just buy them? Mm. And Shelley Long's like, because that's because I thought about that and it is completely missing the point. The girls actually need to like learn industriousness. Yeah. And I'm glad that they sidestepped that because that is the obvious solution to that problem. Right. And I'm glad that they addressed it directly. And I think the audience needs to hear that because if you're just thinking about solving the problem, you're missing the point of the movie, mm. which is about actually Let, learning valuable the, lessons wherever well, you can find them, even if you're in a weird position in life. Well, and also letting the kids solve the problems. Yes. Yeah. So, uh, so, so how do they solve the problems? They do telethons yeah they, and, they and do. street street uh, performances yep cookie time mm. classic song from true beverly hills actually true beverly hills is a pretty dang good soundtrack actually it's very 80s but it's very charming um oh i forgot to mention one of the one of the kids in the wilderness girls a young carla gugino that's right yeah um and uh blink and you'll miss her but one of the girls from the other troops is tori spelling yeah you would think would be in the true like, Beverly Hills, actually, considering he's Aaron Spelling's daughter and right. feels autobiographical in some way. But anyway, uh, they end up selling 4,000 boxes, which, yeah. of course, is quite good. Uh, and uh, But in the end, Velda once again throws it back in their face. 
you're not no. you're not really you're not really Girl Scouts, are you? You're not mm. you're not actually doing the the thing. And uh, like, they sure, met. We're, they, we're doing it. We're just doing it unconventionally. How mm-hmm. dare you reject our unconventional solution mm-hmm. to your old world problem? And to be fair, Velda's boss is like totally seeing it Shelley Long's way, but mm-hmm. Velda just resents everything about her, and she sent her underling, uh, played by the great Mary Gross. Uh, Mary Gross, uh, who I remember from the movie Feds. Yeah, if, that was a big hit for a while. It was a reasonable hit, wasn't it? With her and Rebecca de Mornay, they were like the first I, female FBI yeah, uh, it's, uh, students. It's incredible. It the, I, I imagine it's aged incredibly poorly, I but so. I haven't seen it for quite some time. Yeah. But yeah. She, she was in everything for a little while. She was in Baby Boom and mm. uh, Big Business, uh, The Santa Claus, Practical Magic. I, I, I always liked her. Uh-huh. Um. Uh, so she plays uh, Betty Thomas's henchwoman, who, of course, is actually not all that bad. And the more time she spends with Shelley Long, the more she realizes that Shelley Long is actually a decent person in Velda. Mm-hmm. Even though she may not be the wealthy person in the movie, she's actually not very nice. Yeah. Um, and uh, it's all supposed to culminate in a big um, sort of wilderness hike full of uh, various it's, like obstacle it, course this, things and it's, basically the a, whole idea is Shelley Long has been supposed to have been teaching survival skills so that they can succeed at this sort of double dare Nickelodeon challenge that they're well, all it, supposed to do at the end and Shelley Long becomes she just becomes worried all of a sudden that she has actually failed these kids and they won't be able to do what they have to do and maybe mm. she's, she sucks and that's their long dark tea time of the soul <laughs> and this was a really common story trope in film comedies of the 19th is to culminate everything with a contest, yeah. a competition of some sort. In fact, uh, that's the exact same structure as uh, Revenge of the Nerds, which is directed mm-hmm. by Jeff Canoe, who also did True Beverly yeah. Hills. It was also in Meatballs. Mm-hmm. Um, it was... Uh, it was uh, an element of Animal House. It was a big... Yeah, uh, Rad was about that mm-hmm. as well. And it's basically just... We want to up the stakes at the end of a comedy, and creating some form of direct competition mm. makes sense. It it makes uh, perfect sense if it's to, a sp- to bring it up. It's the wizard again. There you go. It makes perfect sense if it's a sports movie to begin with, like the Bad News Bears. But if it's not, just throwing it in in the last act is it's usually in- weird, incredibly contrived, where everything is necessarily going to come together in a very contrived sort of way. My favorite the, one of these is from the movie Airborne. You ever see Airborne? Oh, where, where, what was it called? Like The Devil's Spine or something? Yeah, it's, it's uh, called The Devil's Backbone. The Devil's actually. Backbone. It's got nothing okay. to do with the Guillermo del Toro movie, but um, Airborne is one of the most 90s movies of the 90s. It's about a surfer kid uh, who was forced to move to the Midwest where mm-hmm. there is no surf, dude. And uh, he's J- very... Justin Whalen, was it? Was it? The, the no. lead actor, or no, no, because that was the dude from uh, Dungeons and Dragons, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah wasn't, wasn't it the same guy? It yeah. wasn't him. He looked more oh. like Ryder Strong than that guy, but it wasn't Ryder Strong. <laughs> uh, but uh, so he's just like ultimate like Zen surfer bro, and he moves to the Midwest, and uh, there's a group of like Midwest hockey dudes who hate him. One of whom is played by a young Jack Black. Um, and it's basically the whole thing is people don't like him, people don't like him. Everyone's wearing '90s clothes. Everyone's wearing '90s clothes. And then in the last act. We have to have the most awesome rollerblade race in the history of cinema. We have to skate down this very, very long, very steep downhill slope. It it comes out of nowhere and solves nothing, but it's actually shot really cool. Mm. Like, it's... I like that movie, even though it's hopelessly dated, because, like, you're watching it, it's like, oh, what an interesting relic, what an interesting relic. Shit, that's a good race. Mm. That's just a well-filmed race sequence. That's, like, really <laughs> badass, actually. Like, True Beverly Hills doesn't have that kind of dynamic action. No. And, in fact, the big... 
climactic suspense sequence is walking across a log. And it's <laughs> and you could tell they didn't have sort of the budget or the time or the the production value to make something that looked like large and dangerous. It, it's like someplace down in Topanga Canyon. Like yeah. they just went out into the wilderness. Oh yeah, it's very clearly. They, they put out. I a do log. appreciate that it's clearly L.A. It's yeah, it's very clearly <laughs> Southern where, California. Where you would camp in L.A. is mm. not where you would camp in like camp in like a Friday the Thirteenth movie where it's mm. New England and it's green. Mm. No, no, it's, <laughs> it looks it's really crappy actually. And they, and they do talk about rattlesnakes, which are local. Yeah, uh, and, and yeah, it's all about how. Oh no, that that you might slip off that log and fall. It's a long way down. It's like ten feet. Yeah, you might. You, you, like you could sprain something. You you could hurt yourself. Yeah, but yeah you want to it, slip. It, it's not life or death. It's not yeah. clearly dangerous. Yeah. it's not as dangerous as the film is trying to have us believe it is. No, but that's about as far as the stakes can go yeah. here. And it all culminates when. Uh, Velda is is injured, not horribly, but injured. But she has trained her uh, Red Feather scout troop mm. uh, that winning is the only thing that matters. So they immediately abandon her as dead weight. Mm. And uh, uh, Shelley Long's crew, and they they basically wagered that they have to win this thing. Uh, Shelley Long's crew is the only one that actually like stops to help her. Because even though she's terrible, she's still a human being, and they've yeah. learned a valuable lesson that everyone is a human being and deserves to be cared for. And uh, so they end up dragging her along with them. And isn't it like the same uh, a gag at the end of Monsters University where the Red Feathers get there first, but they didn't bring their whole crew, so they lost? That's right. Yeah. 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 And that's a good message, too. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, you lost. Yeah, you really should have read those rules. Cause, well, because they, they left a teammate behind, and yeah. that's that's not in the spirit of the thing. Exactly. And so it all ends really happily, and everyone's super cheerful, and Craig T. Nelson and Shelley Long get back together. And it's adorable! I love this movie! I've seen this movie so many times. It's charming. Uh, and uh, and there's a, lo- a bunch of celebrity cameos. They're oh, selling, so selling boxes of cookies door-to-door, and they stop at Kareem Abdul-Jabbar's house. Yep. Who, uh, I guess you might not know who he is anymore, but he was like... The, I think people... Please tell me people know who Kareem Abdul-Jabbar is. He's one of the greatest football... Uh, I almost said one of the greatest he, football, football players. players. I guess you don't know who he is. He's, one he, he was ba- one of the LA Lakers. He was one of the greatest basketball players yeah. of all time. He was also uh, the co-pilot in the movie Airplane. Mm. And uh, the doomsayer in uh, the TV uh, miniseries of this, The Stand, the That's original right. TV yeah. miniseries. Uh, um, not, not much of an actor. He'd probably agree. Yeah, and, uh, good presence. You know, he's yeah. funny. Um, he shows uh, up. Cheech uh, shows up as himself, which is yeah. a little bizarre. And he he's, gets he's to at a, a rich person's party. He gets to uh, be like one of several. Like once uh, Mary Gross uh, comes out of her shell. Mm-hmm. She's uh, a lot more confident, and people are attracted to her now. Yeah, and now all of a sudden, like people are like, you know, really interested in her. And Cheech Marin is one of the first people to notice. Like, wow, you're really attractive. And um, um, th- doesn't like, um, oh, what's his name? Who was the guy who remember married with children? They had next door neighbors, and then the mm-hmm. husband of the next door neighbor left halfway through the show and was replaced by oh, like a young hunky guy, like right? the guy who was yeah. like the bad guy in Revenge of the Nerds two. <laughs> Remember? I, I, I don't. I don't. There's, guy there's not a lot I remember about Revenge of the Nerds. He had 80s sleazeball written all over him. I think he shows up again as someone else mm. who's trying to uh, romance Mary Groves, and good for her. Mm. Um, there's so many, there's so many uh, Joyce Brothers shows up. Mm. Uh, there's this one hilarious bit where uh, for, it just all of a sudden, like they're selling cookies, they're selling cookies, and then all of a sudden, close up on Robin Leach, the lifestyles of the rich and famous guy, and he just announces, ladies and gentlemen, Pia Zadora! <laughs> That's right, and Pia Zadora comes and out. As Pia Zadora, you can get Pia Zadora in your movie. It's not, no, it, that's you, not a challenge. In the late eighties, you could get Pia Zadora. You like, get Pia Zadora now. She'll oh, do no, it. But my it. point is, is that her the brief moment where maybe you couldn't get Pia Zadora mm. was over between like eighty two and eighty four. <laughs> fair, fair. Yeah. yeah. Um, 
But um, yeah, so there's a lot of Beverly Hills cameos. It's very knowing about the actual yeah, environment in which it is set, and I appreciate that. And, yeah, it it it's. As somebody watching this for the first time in 2021, yeah. uh, it's, uh, some of its economic politics don't really read quite as well as perhaps they might have. Uh, this this True. deep sympathy and humanity that we're trying to sort of force onto the ultra-rich is something that seems a little naive now. Shouldn't you feel but it bad isn't. for the rich? And I'm like, maybe for how disassociated they can become. Mm. And I, it's easy to feel bad. And I think the whole point of the movie is it's easy to feel bad for the rich people's kids who are mm. being raised in an environment which is very divorced from the experience yeah. of most children and that's bound to feel alienating. Yeah. And, and so and that's to, that's true. That's to, a fair point. That's not they're yeah. not wrong. But this this film walks a, a really interesting line because the rich are buffoons, mm-hmm. but they're also very sympathetic. And that's tough to pull off. And I think Shelley Long is one of one of the great reasons it works. Mm. Because she's able to play this kind of very clueless character, but who's also very honest. I, they, have, they, yeah. I, I feel about her the same way I feel about a character like Ernest P. Worrell. Mm. Ernest P. Worrell's a boob. He's also a klutz, and he's very destructive, but... You love him. You, you gotta admit, you kind of like Ernest just because he's a good guy and he's always trying to help. And because he's actually he's very sympathetic Ernest. to the... He is, he's very sincere and he's yeah, very... The, the, he's name very is, the name is appropriate. Yeah, he actually cares about people. He, and he's even not though cruel. He's, he doesn't yeah. hate a lot. He's actually very yeah. welcoming of all people. When he hurts people, it's because he was trying to help them. Yeah, and it's yeah. hard to be mad about that. And I think that's true mm. for a lot of the things Shelley Long did. And I think this is definitely one of her better roles. I have a question for you. Uh, there is arguably, I would say... Uh, the greatest article ever written hmm. uh, on the internet. And it was uh, an article in which someone ranked every single outfit <laughs> Shelley Long wears in Troop Beverly Hills. Every single new scene you see Shelley Long in, she's wearing a completely different outfit. And the outfits range from, actually that's quite stylish, hmm. to that is unbelievably absurd. And I love all of these outfits. And I'm curious which outfit or outfits made the biggest impression on you. Mm. Uh, she's wearing an outfit early in the movie mm. where she is wearing. Um, I don't. I'm not. I'm not a fashion guy, so yeah. I apologize. But it's it's the sort of like cinching corset that has like a bustle attached to it. Well, it's, it's like it's like, like it just flares out to the flares side, out to the sides, but not all around in a circle. Like it's yeah yeah. There, yeah. There's a name for that, and I forget what. That um, is. Yeah, and she she looks like mm. a, she looks like a like a tiered cake. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great one. That's awful. (laughs) But it's good, though. Like, it's not something a human being should wear. Even Shelley Long, who's, you know, very good physical comedian, is clearly not comfortable in it. And uh, it's it's clearly like a parody of what fashion ought to look like. Yeah. But that's, Mm. to be fair, that's a lot of high fashion. Yeah. Is supposed to be pushing the boundaries of what fashion is capable of. Mm. And then that gets filtered down into something a little bit more practical. Right, right. There's a a, a speech about it in the film, The Devil Wears Prada. And it's a good speech. Mm. And it it really clarifies if you've looked at, like, weird-looking, like, Mm. fashion shows and going, who is that for? And it's like, it's there to be interesting and inspire people to do different things. And I feel like Shelley Long is playing the person who could actually afford the actual outfit. Mm. And I feel like that's the gag. Yeah. Um, but I want to give credit where credit is due here. That article I was talking about uh, is by Lindy West. It is on Jezebel. Uh, and it came out in 2014. Mm. And it's still the greatest article I've ever read on the internet. <laughs> in any case. Um, so, yeah. So, final final thoughts on True Beverly Hills before we move on. Because this is your first time watching. Right. And I'm clearly a fan. Um it, it it's it's very it's it, it's a puffball. 
you know, it's it's a, a comedy that's supposed to be really appropriate for little kids. Uh, I, I probably would have liked it a lot more had I seen it in 1989, mm-hmm. uh, back when comedies were a little bit more of a, an important centerpiece to a lot of the pop culture zeitgeist. Yeah. Uh, this this was around the time I was watching films like Look Who's Talking and uh, you know Crocodile Dundee and f- comedy films that were really really big hits, uh, and so I would have been a little bit more uh, conversant in that sort of comedy language because that's just w- where everything was at the time. Uh, yeah, watching it now, it it does feel uh, sort of like a throwaway. It was mm. one of the lesser films to come out of that era, uh, but I appreciate Shelley Long a lot, it's and okay. and she brings enough heart to the movie that it actually does function rather than feel like something that's hopelessly out of date in terms of its views of, of wealth and the wealthy. It's weird to me that Shelley Long's mm. career wasn't bigger than it was. Like she had her, her she film was, career. Yeah. Anyway, she was a big yeah. sitcom star and then she left to focus on films and she had a couple of modest successes and then she just didn't after a mm. while. And she was always reliable. She was always funny. She was always talented in everything that she did. And I just feel like, she should have been a huge star, like a huge, huge, huge star. Mm. And she was briefly, and it just didn't last, and it should have lasted. Yeah. I've, I've always been a fan, and uh, yeah. Mm. Anyway, I'm glad you enjoyed it. I'm glad this wasn't, uh, you know, something that ended up I, I, I hurting you. Sometimes, no, no, no. Sometimes so things it, that have aged poor. Sometimes things age poorly, and I'm glad uh-huh. this one held up, and that you like, you were able to enjoy it too. Um, my first time watch, however, <laughs> this is a movie I had seen before. I yeah, and now I've watched it twice. I've seen this movie as much as I've seen Return of the Jedi. <laughs> Jesus Christ, Whitney. We're going to talk about a film. We're going to talk... I can't. <laughs> We're going to talk about a 1990 film directed by Stan Winston. Uh, one year has passed since Troop Beverly Hills, and the world has fallen apart. <laughs> We're going to be uh, talking about a gnome named Gnorm. He's an L.A. cop. He's a, uh, a gnome. Right, a gnome. He's hot on the trail of a million bucks. He's after the, uh, the, uh... Lumen! Right. Meet Gallagher and Gnorm. Two guys with nothing in common. Giant outpost. Well, almost nothing. Take it easy, will you? You gotta concentrate. They've got to work together and get it together before everything blows apart. Upworld, the normal, it's not. Yeah, it's a gnome named Gnorm. A gnome named Gnorm, mm. also known as Upworld. Uh, because is, eventually they realized that was a stupid name. Yeah. <laughs> gnome named Gnorm is a cop movie uh, cum E.T. knockoff, where uh, the E.T. is a gnome. Yeah. And the gnome, gnomes in this universe are underground dwellers. That They live yeah. in caves, they dress like little hobos, got like leather clothes and, and gunny sacks. And pockets and, full yeah. of bones, and they. Yeah. It, but I, I think you hit the nail on the head, mm. though, because like oftentimes there's a hit movie and people try to copy it. Mm. Okay, it's ET. Okay, we'll do ET, but with a different kind of creature. Okay, fine. And then we'll do oh, buddy cop movies. Right, well, we'll do a buddy cop movie, but with that ET creature. But yeah. like, and yeah, and so this is that's the gag. It's two things. It's ET meets Forty Eight Hours. That is not a good pitch. That's, that's, a, that's a bad elevator pitch. Every time yeah, I've seen a... like that level, of, it, I've seen like weird buddy cop stories work. There was mm-hmm. a really good. Uh, we did a whole series on Cancel Too Soon once, like a whole month, where we talked about uh, movies where there was a human cop and their robot partner. Mm. And there were a couple of really good ones, uh, especially Almost Human. 
uh, starring Michael yeah. Ely. That one kicked ass, actually. That was awesome. It was a really good show. It was really, thought, really well written. There was one just from, too expensive to survive. There was one from the early 90s starring Yancey Butler, which was surprisingly good, called Man and Machine, but it's M-A-N-N because the human cop was named Man. Get it? Uh, but it was actually pretty well written, and Yancey Butler really carried it well. Um, but uh, most of the time when I've seen people try to do, like, hmm. an, uh, an, an inhuman or monstrous type of uh, cop partner, it sucks. Mm. I've never seen all of Theodore Rex, where Whoopi Goldberg was a human cop, and her partner (laughs) was a tiny Tyrannosaurus that was the size of a very, like... Like a very big person, but like lo- not. But it looks like that TV show dinosaurs. Yeah. Like it had big c- cartoon eyes. And, yeah. uh, it was basically Who Framed Roger Rabbit, except instead of cartoons living like alongside like human people, it was dinosaurs, human sized dinosaurs, human sized yeah. dinosaurs. Not like a big T Rex walking around going, "Hey, how's it going?" Like yeah, it was even tried in that movie, Bright. Oh, yeah, where, yeah. Uh, the, the, the human cop and. Uh, Troll orc, I think it was an orc partner yeah. in like a fantasy universe. The thing uh, with the thing with cop comedies is that cops aren't funny usually. Mm. They end up having to deal with really severe situations that aren't necessarily prone to humor. And if you're not willing to go dark with it, you're usually like clearly like like glossing over mm. the real story. Or if you make it too dark, you can't be cute and funny anymore. Mm. Ironically, one of the few movies that I think did this right is a movie that everyone else hates, but I Mm. will stand by this. Stop or My Mom Will Shoot is not that bad. (laughs) It's actually kind of funny. Mm. It's actually a good juxtaposition, and the people, the actors in it understand the gag. Uh, But it's just really, really hard to pull off. So what we have here is a movie that on one hand is like a gritty cop movie where we see people get shot in the head. And on the other hand, it's a visual effects kids movie about uh, an animatronic gnome, and that's how they insist that it's pronounced, uh, that like runs around and like knocks things over mm. and the, like... Right. And, eat, and, and ticking. And, like spits mm. in its hand and it's all gross and um, sexually oh, yeah, harasses there's... Claudia Christian and... Oh, poor Claudia Christian. Oh. Claudia Christian does have a nice, long, healthy career. Uh, yeah. she, she was on a Babylon 5. She did okay. I know, but uh, she has, she's, she's in some she, movies where she, she's... She had to pay her dues. Oh, my God. She paid so many so dues, so much Claudia respect Christian. for Claudia Christian yeah. as ever, an actor. Yeah. She's so damn talented. Did you ever see that movie, Ooh. Hexed? It was, like a, a, it was kind of like a spoofish movie where uh, it was about... Um, it was sort of like a, a comedy version of Basic Instinct, where she played the vamp, and she was really good in that movie. It looks. I'm looking at it right now. It looks familiar. I feel like mm. I might have seen it, but it's 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 the kind of thing. I probably if I watched it, I'd recognize scenes. Yeah, I'm pretty yeah. sure I definitely. I'm pretty sure we rented that at least once. Mm. Um, but yeah, I'm a, I'm a big Claudia Christian mm. fan. She's she's always a delight. Never seen her. Whitney and I will go to bat for the movie Arena any day of the week. <laughs> Uh, but also the hidden kicks ass. Yeah, Cla- Claudia Christian, whatever. And this was this was another film where she's sort of paying her dues. Uh, yeah. Her, she and Anthony Michael Hall are partners, and this is something that's taken from partly Police Academy, partly Lethal Weapon, where the Anthony Michael Hall cop character is wacky and he dresses weird and has a wild apartment. 
and likes to do funny voices, and he's also averse to violence. He doesn't load yeah. his gun. He's he's a little kid who is mm. a cop, basically. He's gets to wear silly clothes. He gets to like his his apartment is filled with comic books. There's a scene where like they open up a drawer, and his drawer is filled with comic books at work, which is supposed to show that like he's really immature. But clearly, he's been created to be a stand-in for kids in the audience. Yeah. So, like, he's a cop, but it's you. If you were a cop, 13-year-old child, and I'm like, hmm. we should not be cops. <laughs> not a good plan. Uh, at the beginning of the movie, he has been uh, selected uh, by the chief of police, Jerry Orbach. Pre-law and order Jerry Orbach. Yep. Around the same time, um, it was... the. Was this when Beauty and the Beast came out? This was a year before Beauty and the Beast. Yeah, he was also uh, the voice of... It was Lumiere in Beauty and the Beast, he was, right? Yeah, the candlestick. Yeah, weird, I, I, that weirded me out the first time I heard that. The, that well, Jerry Orbach Jerry was Lumiere. Jerry Orbach was like a, a song and dance guy from Broadway. I'm not singing yeah. fine. It's just the, the, the French accent through me. Oh, okay. I, yeah. I don't know why that just... I couldn't... I, I he, couldn't imagine Jerry Orbach his, doing the voice. I his, couldn't see him doing it. His voice acting is so good that you don't recognize yeah. that it's Jerry Orbach. He's brilliant. Yeah. He's, he's a wonderful actor. Jerry mm-hmm. Orbach, the late, sadly, no longer with us, Jerry Orbach, amazingly wonderful character actor, mm-hmm. brought dignity to almost everything he did. He's in this movie. No one can help him. <laughs> he's on his own here, and yeah, he does um, the best he can. But he's enlisted uh, uh, Anthony Michael Hall to be the undercover guy, and uh, they're go- there's some they're making an exchange money him. for stolen jewels, basically. Mm. And uh, while in the middle of the exchange, Anthony Michael Hall is knocked unconscious. The person who is making the exchange with the jewels gets blown up, which is really violent. And the gnome, whose name is Gnorm. Um, has just just come to the surface at that exact moment. Yeah, because in, in a public park. Because and and this is something that they take way too long to explain. It's not that important. Here's how it works: in the underground gnome city, uh, their source of power is called a lumen, and it's basically a solar battery, but it's like a jewel. Mm, and every once in a while, it's a mag- magical MacGuffin. It's a magical MacGuffin, but it needs to be recharged every so often by a gnome taking the dangerous trip to the surface, or as they call it, upworld. To basically charge it in the sun. There's a moment where, like, Gnorm is like, uh, where is the sun? And I'm like, you're in Southern California. It's fucking ever. It's not that smoggy. You can get there. Like, the end of the movie, when they finally charge the dang thing, they had shot, like, Anthony Michael Hall climbing a tree to get closer to the sun. Mm. And it's, it's, it's not good absurd. It's just stupid mm. absurd. I, I don't know who played the voice of Gnorm. Mm. Uh, it was... And whenever they showed Gnorm in uh, long shots, it was always, like... Uh, it was mostly an animatronic. Sometimes it was, like, a, a rod puppet. And sometimes it was uh, per- somebody in a suit that had, mm. like, servos in the face to make it, mm-hmm. uh, make it operate. While the mask... I feel about the Gnorm mask the way I feel about the Howard the Duck mask. Mm. In that it's expressive... But not in a way you want to see. No. It's really unappealing to look at. Sometimes. It's, it's teeth show in this really unnatural mm-hmm. way. It, sometimes the uh, eyes move in a way that's not like the eyes moving. It's like they suddenly like get bulbous and bulge mm. in a way that's like really off-putting and gross. It's a really unappealing looking creature. And what's weird is that this was directed by Stan Winston. Now, if you don't know the name... Mm. Uh, you know his work. Mm. Stan Winston was a visual effects and creature effects artist mm. who worked on such films as Aliens, mm. Predator, Terminator 2, Edward Scissorhands, 
Jurassic Park, AI, artificial intelligence, The Thing, Iron Man. Like, he's one of the legends mm-hmm. of practical visual effects. He made yeah, the monsters yeah. that we love. He made the, the heroes that we love. He made the robots that we love. His first film that he directed was a horror movie called Pumpkinhead, which is not... Some people will fight me on this. I don't think it's a particularly good movie, but it's Mm -hmm. a perfectly fine movie. More than anything, the monster is really cool. Yeah, Lance Henriksen plays a guy whose child is run over by a bunch of drunken teenagers, if I'm remembering it correctly, and uh, he's so overcome with grief that he Mm. basically makes a deal with the devil and goes through this weird arcane ritual to raise a demonic pumpkin creature uh, to exact violent revenge. The monster looks amazing. Yeah. The, the story is very simple, I think to a fault, but it gets you there. It's worth it to see the monster. Stan Winston clearly put effort into the monster. You would think that even if the script wasn't good, the gnome in a gnome named Gnorm would be worth it. We'd be mm-hmm. like, oh well, at least uh, you gotta be, you gotta admit, Norm looked awesome, right? Norm looks terrible, yeah. even for the era. He looks terrible. He's off-putting. He's got hair and like these weird, ugly wisps. Like his eyes are violent sometimes. Like there's this, <laughs> there's this part where he's like in the back seat of a car and he's trying to kill Jerry Orbach, and it's right out of the movie Child's Play. Mm. It's right at that scene where Chris Sarandon's fighting Chucky. Chucky's trying to strangle him in the backseat. It's that scene. Mm. And it's as scary or scarier yeah, I, because Gnorm is terrifying. They're, they're clearly trying to go for something like um, uh, Peter Froud was the name of the designer who did the creatures in The Dark Crystal. Yeah. And he did a lot of like fantasy paintings with these really kind of mm-hmm. strange-looking creatures. And I think that's kind of the design they were going for, something a little bit more earthy and earthen with this sort of distended mm. face. Yeah. Uh, but it fails. Yeah. It, it doesn't have any kind of wonderment or, or like practicality. It doesn't move in a natural sort of way. When we see long shots of the the, the gnome's full body, it, it it looks like it can't stand up. Like yeah. it doesn't look like a, a a creature. There's a scene in the movie where they strip search the gnome, and they li- we 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 go through this scene. Yeah. This is not off camera. Like we don't see full gnorm, but they make a point of showing how like weird and violating this is. Mm. Why? Is that... You wanted to show off your puppet? Like, no. Don't do this. Why are you doing this to us or Gnorm? That's as far as my sympathy goes for Gnorm. I don't like Gnorm as a character. He's gross and off-putting and weirdly sexist. He has a lot of really, like, untoward things to say about Claudia Christian. And he he explains, in fact, that uh, even though this lumen needs to be charged up, he was doing it uh, out of schedule. Like he just sort of did it without anybody asking him because he wanted to impress a, a gnome girlfriend. Who is apparently, yeah. apparently very shallow and only likes warriors, and mm-hmm. uh, Gnorm is merely a tunneler. Look, we don't know about Gnome what, society. What a great mythology we've created. Thanks, to Gnome and Gnorm. <laughs> but basically, the, the plot ends up being Anthony Michael Hall has to find a way to communicate with Gnorm and find some way to form a bond and convince Claudia Christian that Gnorm is real. And then try to figure out how to get Gnorm on the... He's he's a witness to a murder. That's the plot of the movie. The plot a... is a gnome witness to murder. Yeah, and so he's got to figure out a way 
to like and i'm like how are you gonna get him on the stand he refuses mm. to be like seen by other people except half the time no when he just is i'll i'll, I'll give a gnome named gnorm this much how anthony, much anthony michael hall <laughs> is so game yeah uh, like, anthony michael hall is actually a very energetic actor uh and he's, he's quite good too and he's, yeah. he's continued to work um if you've ever seen his work on the dead zone that's he's, a good he's actually quite he's yeah pre- pretty good um he brought a lot of necessary wrath to a movie like Freddy got fingered where it's just sort of he's, he's like the only character in that movie who behaves like a human which is saying a lot I've, I've actually never seen that movie oh god it is execrable uh, <laughs> It's it's worse than you've heard. Like it is it is unbelievably bad. Um, yeah, I, I think uh, and somehow that doesn't make me want to see it. Like Usually Ro- that would. I don't... Like uh, Roger Ebert in his review of Freddy Got Fingered said, "The day may come when this is seen as some sort of weird neo surrealist masterpiece." And some people actually describe it that way. Yeah, I know. But he also says the day will never come when people describe it as funny. <laughs> <laughs> Some people do think that the, it's like this weird work of like broad satire, and I can see how it functions that way. But it's so off-putting; it's difficult to absorb the message. Yeah. Uh, Anthony Michael Hall is at least looking at this disgusting-looking gnome puppet and trying to so behave like a real human being around it, yeah. and trying to interact with it on a real level in ways that the other actors aren't. Yeah. There's so a lot of people I, I who can, are turning in cartoon performances. I can, and and he's playing a very broad character, Anthony Michael Hall, but I but he's at least trying to bring some kind of actual humanity and functionality to this movie. You know you know who he is in this movie, and I think this is a parallel I think newer audiences, younger audiences might be able to appreciate. James Marston. There you go. He's James Marston opposite Sonic the Hedgehog. Yeah, or that rabbit or yeah. whatever. Like he's He's giving what he needs to give, and if the script isn't good, that's not his fault. Um, I don't think Anthony McCall's particularly amazing in this or anything, but you're right. He's being asked to act under weird duress. There's a weird bit in this movie. The villains in this movie... Uh, uh, and this, there's a there's, secret villain, and a, spoiler alert: it's Jerry Orbach. There's no Jerry. one else it could be. Jerry <laughs> Orbach's a bad guy, but before then, we have two a, other villains. Yeah, there's a bad guy named Zadar, and then there's another bad guy played by Robert Zadar, who does not play the character of Zadar, but his name, his real name, is Zadar, and he has to talk to a guy named Zadar a lot and say the name Zadar. It's weird. It is a weird. I don't know if it's a meta joke. Or what? I don't. Maybe he was originally supposed to play Zadar, but then they decided to switch roles for some weird reason. I don't get it. Robert Zadar, if you're unfamiliar with him, he's no longer with us, sadly. Uh, very fun character actor. He was very distinctive, and because he had a very pronounced jawline, mm. so he typically played bruiser characters, like really big heavy uh, guys, br- yeah, brutes and heavies. Yeah, uh, he was. Uh, he was one of the bad guys in Tango and Cash. Uh, he was the the titular maniac cop in the Maniac Cop movies. Mm. Good movies, by the way. Uh, and uh, I I was always a fan, even when he even though he wasn't a particularly good actor, you could always tell he was having fun. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> it was just like I get to be in a movie today, like that kind of enthusiasm. Like he's always I, having a good time. I I like Robert Zadar a lot Same. I, yeah. because he's 
he will do uh, like these trash movies, and he'll he'll just, he'll be there. Yeah. He'll show up. He'll show up on the set. He'll give he'll just do, as much to a little movie job, as to yeah. a big movie. And you gotta love that kind yeah. of commitment. Uh, I, I would never describe him as a great actor, but yeah. he is an actor. He, yeah. I mean, he he plays different parts, but he's in a lot of just total crap. There's this weird bit where they uh, he encounters Anthony Michael Hall and Ganorm, and. They don't really sell the joke very well, but I guess he's, like, really nearsighted. So he doesn't see anything weird about Ganorm. He thinks Ganorm is a child. Mm. And Anthony Michael Hall is this cop who is taking a child with him to, like, fight bad guys. And he actually, like, stops in the middle of a fight and gives Anthony Michael Hall a lecture about being a better parent. Mm. And I'm like... You know, maybe that's why they switch characters and you're not playing Zidar, man. You just wanted this fun speech. <laughs> it's so good for you. I would love to have seen him play like multiple characters and they all look like Robert Zidar. It's very distinct looking. <laughs> just they all. This is a world where a bunch of people just happen to look exactly like Robert yeah, Zidar. The Zidar triplets. You just yeah. have them all. Uh, oh, you know what? I recently saw Robert Zadar for uh, in Cherry Two Thousand, which oh, yeah. I, I saw for the first time recently. Oh, you only just saw um, it for the first time? Yeah, that movie's pretty fun, isn't it? It's pretty fun. It's, it's very cool. Fun. If you've never seen Cherry Two Thousand, we'll take a aside here because apparently we're not going to do it here because when you've seen it, it's one of my faves. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cherry Two Thousand takes place in the near future, where um, uh, there, first off, it's like a post-apocalypse because of course it is, uh, but also like human like sexual interaction has turned into something that is so bureaucratic like super super commodified yeah. and, and you people go to singles bars with their lawyers and mm. their lawyers negotiate a first date and it's and it, it's clearly, plays one of the lawyers by the way it's really funny it's clearly a reaction to the aids crisis of course yeah. it is of course it is yeah. and it's it 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 fits. It makes but sense. The, it's the like main, it's an extrapolation yeah. of where we think things are going in the eighties. So the protagonist of the film isn't interested in dating human beings. He has a sex doll, but it's the future, and his sex doll is it's a really a, complicated android, a, a completely lifelike robot. At the beginning of the movie, the robot malfunctions, and so he has to travel into the hazardous wastes in order to find a replacement. Like computer chip to fix his sex bot, mm. and in order to do that, he hires a badass tracker played by Melanie Griffith, who helps him fight off wave after wave of self-help '80s cultists <laughs> in order to fix his sex bot. Yeah. That's an awesome fucking movie. It, it's yeah, and, and it's it's actually very critical of a lot of the the trends that were big in the 1980s. Yeah, it's uh, from, but yeah, it, there's yeah. A, a scene where he goes into like a, a Baghdad cafe, like this sort of like mm. really run down hotel out on the edge of town, and Robert Tadar is just in it. He's just sort of wandering yeah. around in it, and I don't think he like I think maybe he has a line of dialogue, and yeah. then he just wanders off. Uh, this is uh, from the uh, Cherry 2000 was from the same director as uh, there's uh, Steve DeJarnat who had also directed Miracle Mile, which is. Mm. I think gradually, steadily being considered like this cult masterpiece of the 80s. Uh, so if you've seen Miracle Mile and you never saw Cherry 2000, see Cherry 2000. And if you've never seen Cherry 2000 at all, see Cherry 2000. Well, it's really In neat. fact, just run down Robert Zadar's filmography because yeah. you'll run into a lot of interesting stuff. You'll find Samurai Cop. Yeah, which oh, is, that's a fun <laughs> Samurai Cop is... One is of the best bad movies one of, yeah, ever. Yeah, really one of the best bad movies I, I don't like made. usually using that term like yeah. so bad it's good because my in my estimation, if I'm enjoying it, it must be doing something right. Yeah. Well, right. it, Samurai it can, Cop is will, clearly doing many things wrong. It's I, clearly I, a work of incompetence, but it's still very fun. I put it this way. A film can be very, very bad and still be entertaining. Mm. Uh, and, and both of those things can be true. I guess my point is, as a critic, if mm. I'm enjoying it, I need to be able to explain why. And exactly, simply saying yeah. it's so bad it's good feels like a cheat. 
I need to be able to go but deeper if, than that. If you if you if you see a, a film that's incredibly bad, but you are sort of rolling with its goofy earnestness and are enjoying sort of how clueless it is, then you can say that. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, and, I just and, think, I just think and Samurai Cop is an incredibly clueless movie. It was made by a guy named Amir Shirvan. Mm-hmm. He made three three high profile, well, high profile. Well, they, yeah, they, let's they, they had budgets of $150 yeah. a piece. But uh, yeah, these sort of uh, cop movie knockoffs and one of them is Samurai Cop. And that's become yeah. sort of a... a Became a big midnight movie phenomenon for a short while. You, you can tell how much we really don't like talking about a gnome named Ganorm because well, we've just I'm, been I'm on a say, very long tangent. Well, I'm gonna. I, I was. We were. This falls in line with the Robert Zadar career. He plays a sporting character okay. in this, where he doesn't play the character named Zadar, <laughs> where so he gets weird. to where he gets to give a speech to Anthony Michael Hall about how uh, irresponsible it is to to bring a gnome on police raids. <laughs> Okay, you know what? There's something kind of strange about this. Yeah. A gnome named Gnorm is not fun to watch. No, it's it, really hurtful, actually. Mm. Like, the, people talk about, like, oh, why are critics, like, so mean to movies? And sometimes critics mm. are just jerks, just like anyone is. Mm. But Cause movies, the movie, the movies, movies sometimes hurt, hurt us. Movies yeah. sometimes hurt us. Yeah. Like, we're being... We go into a movie, and as, as anyone does, mm. and we're, we're opening ourselves up to an experience. We're giving you our trust. And we're saying, please... Show us whatever you want. And if you show something that hurts us, that makes us really wish we weren't here, that offends our sensibilities, that we find simply grotesque, uh, and then we can't find any meaningful justification for why it's like this, and it just is a really unpleasant thing to sit through, and we have to sit through the whole thing, and we have to keep hoping that maybe it'll get better, and it never does. Yeah, we're hurt. We might lash out a little bit. I'm not saying it's mature, but sometimes it happens. And a, a gnome named Gnorm is really pushing the fucking limits. There's so many things in this movie that I should at least be amused by. At least mm-hmm. the the fact of their existence. And instead, I hate them. Yeah, I just hate there's, them. There's not there's not a moment where you feel like, oh, they did that well. Yeah. Or th- that's that's wonderfully strange. Yeah. They're selling it so straight, and the the direction is so bland, mm-hmm. and the special effect is on Gnorm is so bad, yeah, and the concept is so bad mm-hmm. that you're never at a moment where you can say, "This is okay." Yeah, I'm fine with the idea here. The best I can do mm-hmm. is is pity the actors. Yeah, pity I pity Anthony Michael Hall. I pity Claudia Christian. I pity I really pity Jerry Orbach. Uh, these are people who are really trying to make a movie out of this, and the material fails them. I would love to hear an oral history on a gnome named Gnorm because my theory, and it's just a theory, I don't, I don't have a lot of good behind-the-scenes info on this, is uh, what probably happened here was a movie where different people making it, a director, writer, producer, studio, whoever had enough clout to put th- their hand on the screenplay, yeah. uh, had different ideas about who it should be for. Mm-hmm. Because clearly there's a little kid element here. Because yeah. the protagonist is a very goofy and childlike, mm-hmm. because it's a very childlike premise, there's that element of E.T., imagination on wonder, fine. But it's also clearly intended for older audiences because people it's get little, shot in the head. It's a little bit more ribald. Well, violence was sold to kids a lot more aggressively. Uh, yeah, uh, but uh, this uh, is this is this 
this is clearly not for well, little little kids. Though. No, but this I mean, is clearly for like you look at the blockbuster, teens. the th- PG thirteen rated blockbusters now, and they're incredibly violent. But it's a bloodless violence. Mm-hmm. It's you know people beating up on robots. Yeah. Uh, it's. <clears throat> It, it's violent, but it's less violent than it used to be. And you go back a generation, and the violence... Kids were going to see more violent movies more regularly, I think. I realize that. My point is that I don't feel more like... more violent movies were being made. I think the fact that PG mm. movies, or PG-13 movies, aired a little bit more on violence, even in movies that were for kids, I think the movies that pulled that off, mm. the movies that were good within that dynamic had to walk a tightrope. I think you look mm. at the movies like Gremlins or Gremlins 2, for example, which are clearly movies that appeal to adults and have really dark elements, but also have, again, childlike wonder. Uh, you really need to know where not to cross a line. Mm. You really need to know how to keep adults invested while still keeping small children who mm. aren't really getting all of the subtext or some of the in-jokes. You, you need to find a way to keep them all invested here and it feels like a gnome named gnorm is trying to be appealing to older audiences at least like middle schoolers and teenagers with a little bit more action uh, a little bit more um ogling mm. which is in- immature and inappropriate but it's in there and like that's clearly not for little kids um but they also want to have spitty jokes. Like, oh, we're spitting in our hands mm. and, and we're touching each other and that's how we shake hands on things, isn't that? That's that's a little kid joke. The, that's not a joke that adults are going to be like, mm. charming. Like, that, mm, my, so it's, it, you, you're, and ultimately their attempt to appeal to both types of audiences, older and younger, mm. always falls on the lowest common denominator. Yeah. And so the only, like, target demo I can think of for this movie are like, 13-year-old gross kids mm. who really liked the Garbage Pill Kids movie. Um, yeah. No, uh, 1990 was the year I turned 12. Okay. Had I staggered into a theater <laughs> and seen a gnome named Gnome. Why were you staggering at 12? <laughs> uh, I had so many pixie sticks. Yeah, to, Just, uh, too, too many gummy worms. Uh, <laughs> or or I, I had... This was the era when I was, like, pleading, because my mom wouldn't take me to whatever movie I wanted to see, but my dad would. And uh, so I would plead with my father to take me to see whatever goofy-ass comedy had come out that week. So he took me to see films like Young Einstein and Spaced Invaders. I like Space uh, Invaders. It's been a while since I've seen them. But there's stuff in that movie I really but like. <laughs> all I'll say is, uh, my father is a hero. <laughs> And and had I, like, had a gnome named Gnorm caught my attention, I probably would have seen it at age 12 and might have some vaguely positive memories of it. Mm. I was a fool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this, this is, uh, this yeah. is not, this is not a, 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 a weird, wonderful cult film that's just waiting to be rediscovered. No, it's a, it's a, it's a bad, a, bad cult film that's waiting to be buried. Like yeah, it's just like, the, please let me die. No, we're putting you on Tubi. No, yeah, it's it's a sick little oddity that is made for mockery while you and your friends are yeah. drunk. Yeah, I just there's but, there's, but not twelve. You're over twenty one. Yeah, there's you're just drunk. there's just nothing to recommend about it. It's mm. such a bad film. 
It's just a bad it's film. It's bad. not enjoyable. Yeah. And uh, thank you for making us watch it, patrons. Uh, that is it for the Critically Acclaimed Streaming Club. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Uh, if you want to vote for the next episode of the Critically Acclaimed Streaming Club, head on over to our Patreon page. Patreon.com slash Critically Acclaimed Network. Only $1 a month. Mm-hmm. You get bonus podcasts. You get our Holy Batman podcast. We review every single episode of the 1960s Batman show. Uh, we also have back catalogs as well. That was where our Firefly uh, podcast was. You can listen to that too. And uh, you also get to vote in all our various polls. Mm. And you get to vote every week for the Critically Acclaimed Streaming Club film. And uh, next week, your options all hail from HBO Max. And uh, we decided that since this was um, this is some uh, 80s nostalgia Stuff. Well, we decided to go classy next week. So mm. uh, it's going to be dramas on HBO Max. Uh, and the nominees are vote for whichever one you would like us to review. Uh, East of Eden, one of only three films ever starring James Dean. Uh, like Water for Chocolate, uh, indie uh, hit celebrated uh, uh, film from the 90s. Uh, the Sugarland Express, Steven Spielberg's. Uh, first theatrically released film, unless you count Duel, which is kind of iffy. Like, it was released theatrically some places, but not. Mm. Uh, but um, it's not a film people talk about a lot. Uh, and Love Story, which was a, to use your word, staggeringly popular uh, tragic romance from the 1970s. It was a gigantic blockbuster, and for the most part, people don't talk about it very much anymore. And it'd be interesting to see how it holds mm. up. I've never seen it. I'll tell you that one right now. Um... And that's what's coming up on the Critical Claim Streaming Club. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Uh, head on over to our Patreon if you want to uh, help out the show. Big, big special thank you to all of our patrons, uh, not just for choosing the films for this week, but also for keeping this show and all of our other programming afloat. We wouldn't be here without you. That's mm. just a fact. Um, so thank you, thank you, thank you from the bottom of our hearts. Uh, if you want to join in the conversation, there's a couple of ways to do it. Uh, you can head on over to Twitter, follow us at Critic Acclaim. I am at William Bibiani. I am at Whitney Seibold. We have an email address. It's letters mm-hmm. at criticallyacclaimed.net. You want to talk about the movies that we discussed this week, a topic that we broached, uh, something we mentioned in other podcasts, ask us a question, ask us for recommendations, take us to task or something. That's the best place to do it. Send us an email. We might read your email in an upcoming episode of our podcast, We've Got Mail. And we also have a P.O. box. That's for right. people who like to send us snail mail, people have asked, and so we have it now. Hmm. Tell us what it is. Do we even call it snail mail anymore? I do. All right. Um, it is the Critically Acclaimed Network, P.O. Box 641565, Los Angeles, California, 90064. Uh, love to hear from you. And uh, you know, head on over to our uh, Salt Cat Soap Store. Uh, the Salt Cat Soap Store is actually uh, going a hiatus for a couple of days this week. Uh, while I take, along with my wife and partner, Michelle, uh, our first vacation in like five years. Man, long, long time. It's been five years. So we're going away for like three and a half days. Uh, but when we come back, we're coming back really, really strong uh, with a lot of new uh, uh, soap products for the month of June. It's Pride Month. we got a lot of cool Pride soaps. Uh, we have a soap that I have designed that is based off uh, my memories of my childhood. Which I'm very excited to talk about. Uh, And all of that will be debuting this Saturday. It's first Saturday of the month is when we debut our new line of soaps every single month. So that's Etsy. Go to Etsy.com and look for Salt Cat Soap, all one word. Or you can follow us at Salt Cat Soap on Instagram or Twitter. And if you want more of Whitney talking about movies you might not have heard of, (laughs) make sure you listen to his other podcast. Yeah, um, over on the Screens Margins Network, uh, hosted by the venerable... B. Peterson, uh, they and I are discussing films on 
Ovid, uh, which is the streaming service for sort of deep cut art house lunatics. If you like think me. the Criterion Channel is yeah. way too mainstream, yeah. If if, <laughs> if the Criterion Channel is like, oh, pff, everybody's seen those movies, uh, and you know those are arch and easy to consume. Go over to Ovid, <laughs> and uh, and you can find something that's uh, a little bit more challenging. And uh, golly, it's been such a breath of fresh air. <laughs> Uh, yeah, but uh, B and I have done three episodes so far, and we're going to, going to continue talking about uh, just whatever we happen to catch on Ovid. The name of the podcast is All About Ovid, uh, spelled with all O's. Isn't that Ooh. cute? Uh, oh, Ooh. oh, oh, oh. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you see what I did. So yeah, I'll go over to I the Screen's Margins, uh, hosted by B. Peterson, and you can watch uh, They and I watch. You can listen to They and I talk about all of the greatest films that we watched that week on Ovid. Nice. Yeah. All right, so... Uh, We'll, uh, we look. We can't uh, tell you what we're watching next week, but we will find out uh, pretty mm-hmm. soon on the Patreon page. So once again, you can vote at patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. Thank you, everybody, for joining us on the critically acclaimed streaming club. And until next time, the streamers are done, man. I don't know how we're going to end this. It's fine. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening. Thank you. Thank you.